This evening I'm going to pick up a theme which I've started on previously. And so given that there are a number of people who weren't here last week or the week before, but are relatively new arrivals, I'll go back and do some basic review and then get into the new territory I'd like to talk about tonight, the extension of the the theme. You may have wondered why Vipassana meditation is called insight meditation. What exactly is being suggested by that kind of titling of the activity that we do here? There are many different kinds of insight that we can have. There's insight into how the world works kind of generically, what goes into the creation of global warming, for instance, or there's insight into what's gone into our own personal makeup, our own cycle, uh, emotional history, you know, family of origin dynamics and all of that, or insight into other people and what kind of mood they might be in at any given moment, whether it or not, it's a, a good time to ask them for a favor, or whether <laughs> you better wait to some other day. All of these are insights. But the kind of insight that we're talking about in the process of doing this meditation here, this vipassana, is very particular. And in In order to understand how the whole activity is oriented, you have to understand something about the Buddha's schema, the way he he sets out a problem that he then addresses. And this activity that we're doing here, this meditation, is part of what he tells us we need to do in order to individually address this very same problem that he talks about quite comprehensively in his teaching of the first noble truth. The truth that there is suffering, that there is difficulty, that there is unbridgeable gap between how we would like reality to be and how it actually is. And these first teachings, these teachings on dukkha, the three kinds of dukkha, the things that are suffering and difficult, uh, painful in and of themselves, the, the suffering of impermanence, the way we can't secure things and keep them the way we would like them to be. And the last type of suffering, just the impact of the constant instability of things, the arising and passing away of this ongoing sense field itself, which can be seen as as dukkha when the mind is really settled. So this Vipassana thing has something to do with what he says is the problem, this dukkha. 
this rub. And then the second and third and fourth teachings of, of the Four Noble Truths, you know, there is a cause for this suffering. The cause of this suffering, he says, is craving. But he doesn't really leave it just there. He says, it's craving, it, that's right, it's craving. But that's almost uh, the manifestation of the cause. But if you really look at the root, if you really, really look at the root, the root is ignorance of not understanding how things really are, how things really work, and functioning in a way that takes us in opposition to the truth of how things are on a very fundamental level. And he says in the third noble truth that there there is release from the suffering possible. There is a path to the release of this suffering. And he says the, the path to the release of this suffering in the fourth noble truth can be found, can be contained, can be described in the Eightfold Path. So these are the foundational teachings of the Buddha, the teaching of the Four Noble truth, Truths and the Eightfold Path. So everything else that you come across is some uh, extension, interpretation, extrapolation, method, skillful means, elaboration, review, restatement, use of images, use of metaphors, technical language, related back to these fundamental things. So if we say in the second noble truth that it's this wrong view of things, this active kind of ignorance, that results in craving, you say that's the source of the suffering, then the clear conclusion has to be, well, in order to be free from the suffering, then some kind of basic way you need to address the ignorance. You need to address the misunderstanding, the not knowing. So if we're going to say, what's going on in the practice of Vipassana? What's really going on in the meditation? You could say that we're being encouraged and instructed to use the mind's existent capacity to attend to things on purpose. To bring forward and then employ this quality of sati, this quality of mindfulness that brings us into clear, receptive, allowing, connected relationship with moment-by-moment experience. So the Buddha is really encouraging us in a basic kind of way to move away from the conceptual level, the level that we usually live in, where we're kind of up in our head with ideas about things and a lot of thoughts and emotions and that have their own reality, mostly internal to us, and to go instead to the most simple way of being present to experience at the six sense doors. To go to what we can directly and immediately observe, the seeing, hearing, 
tasting, touching, smelling, as it's happening in real time. And to be aware of what's happening at the mind door, the thoughts, the emotions, the intentions, the memories, the fantasies, all the rest of it, in real time too, when they're predominant. But carrying that same stance of neutral presence or neutral observation towards those things too, in the same way that we might attend to the arising of a sound or a sensation in the body. So why does he do that? Say, turn your mind like this, use your mind like this, attend like this in this particular way. Bring forward this quality of mindfulness. Learn to recognize when it's there. Learn how to use it, how to strengthen it, how to sustain it, in the face of different kinds of activities that might arise in the mind. Because it's a way of getting us out of being lost in the cloud of speculative thought, conceptualization, that has a lot of wrong view embedded in it, and which causes us to suffer both in the short term and in the longer term as it influences our choices and our actions and our future interpretations of things and what would be good to do. It's almost like he's saying, okay, drop below that as best you can initially. Go to something that you can immediately know right now. What is it? Can you feel that? I can remember once I went into an interview with Sharon Salzberg. I think I've told one of you this story. Went into an interview with Sharon Salzberg on a three-month retreat, and she said, and I said, I uh, I don't think I'm mindful. This is like about three weeks into it. I don't think I'm mindful. <laughs> I was rather distressed at this thought because <laughs> I was trying really hard. And she said, can you feel your back touching the chair? And I said, "Uh uh-huh. She said, and what do you notice about what you're feeling? And I said, well, there's pressure. There's warmth. You know, a couple places, you know, seems you know, harder than others. And she said, that's it. (laughs) That's mindfulness. I said, it is? (laughs) She says, yeah, that's it. I said, that's it? That's, That's all there is? That's it? She says, yeah. And it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? This particular quality of simplicity rather radical simplicity in how we ask the mind to receive things seems so elusive sometimes. Which shows the depth of our our conditioning to get lost 
at the sense doors and particularly lost at, at the mind door in the thinking about various things, thinking about ourself and how we are and how we should be or how we must be or how we were or how we will be and the ranking and the rating and the efforts at reform and the efforts to change the past and (laughs) all the rest of it. But this Vipassana is training the mind to see its own experiences in real time at the most fundamental level, in real time. And when things are seen as they are at this level of perception, over time, delusion is actually seen through. And with the arising of a clearer understanding, the mind starts to let go of its deluded interpretation of what is going on. It's previous wrong view of how things work. So you could say that insight meditation is the development and application of the mind's capacity to know things directly in their immediacy in order that liberating understanding can arise. So that's what's going on here. So that means that the establishment of mindfulness is the first thing that needs to happen in Vipassana practice, right? That's the, that's the first quality. And that of course involves discernment about what mindfulness is. So I got my little tutorial from Sharon when <laughs> I was really frustrated and went in for an interview. But there is some discernment required, especially in the earlier stages, because all awareness is not mindfulness. I mean, we have some baseline level of awareness almost all the time, right? I mean, we don't, if we're awake, we don't normally like walk into walls, even though we may be really distracted with some emotional state or something. I mean, most of the time, Even at night, you know, we don't wet the bed. I mean, there's something that's conscious there that tells us, okay, time to get up, head down the hall. But this mindfulness is a little bit different because mindfulness, that particular kind of attending is a particular quality of mind that's there when what are called the hindrances are not dominant. So people probably familiar with the the hindrances, experientially if for (laughs) no other way, right? Sense desire, you know, wanting of something that's obscuring what the present experience is the experience of aversion or not wanting something, wanting to get away from something, wanting to correct something. Sloth and torpor, sleepiness, general inattention, just a lack of clarity, not really knowing what's going on. Restlessness and worry, 
where there's energy, but the mind is kind of like bouncing around and isn't really able to land on anything in particular to know. And then doubt. Doubt, the most seductive one of all in some ways and the most difficult to see. So often awareness is so influenced or filled with hindrances that mindfulness is crowded out. So learning how to discern the hindrances, recognize them while they're there, and developing skill in meeting them is a threshold task for all meditators. That's really the core thing that goes on. So Sayadaw Utejaniya has a, a book, and the title of it is something like don't look down on the hindrances, they'll laugh at you. You know, which is kind of an interesting way of putting it. So he's saying, you know, this, you gotta recognize these, you gotta develop some skill in, in, in working with them. So once that skill is developed in discerning what mindfulness is and learning to, to uh, be present with that particular Uh, mental factor dominant to find that particular band of attention. And and there's some skill in recognizing and working with hindrances. Then the practitioner is really in a position to move towards the deeper levels of practice. And with the arising of what's called access concentration, it's also called momentary concentration, it's possible to hold mindful awareness of a meditation object or a flow of changing objects. So for instance, be mindfully aware of like a full cycle of the breath or be aware of when (coughs) awareness of the breath has been uh, covered over with or replaced with an experience of hearing. So there's still mindfulness going on there even though there's change being seen in the object or other things are happening. Like then maybe an emotion arises, but the mind is, okay, this is an emotion, is present with the same uh, mental factor of sati, dominant, with the change in objects and the coming and going of objects. So this development of access concentration is a a threshold uh, task that allows the practice to continue to develop. And I just told you how it's developed. Discerning mindfulness, learning how to work, use it to work with hindrances. That leads to the strengthening of, of concentration, the strengthening of mindfulness itself. So let's assume that access concentration is something that's starting to develop, starting to come up. Then the task becomes, in Vipassana meditation, becomes seeing what's there specifically and learning from it. And when I say learning from it, I don't mean primarily cognitively, although that's part of it kind of comes along behind the main wagon of experience, of direct experience, experiential knowing. 
So there's a particular teaching called the progress of insight, which is one way of describing the particular learning that happens when sustained mindfulness allows certain noticings to arise in the mind. Noticings that are important in terms of piercing the veil of ignorance that leads to craving, that leads to suffering, that the Buddha says is the big source of dukkha. So this teaching of the progress of insight isn't a sutta teaching, although there's some vague references to it, but it's primarily sourced in what's called the path of purification, the Vasudhimaga, which is um, a fairly authoritative teaching in Theravadan Buddhism. But it, the progress of insight was really developed and uh, brought to uh, a high level of um, specificity through the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw, who was a great Burmese meditation teacher, who basically developed a, a further developed a style of meditation that is employed a lot of different places in the world. So if any of you have ever sat with, for instance, Sayadaw Upandita, um, you know, he's definitely a teacher who is an heir in that style of practice. Common kind of way of practicing that uses noting, uses the breath as a significant object, or uh, in some cases other significant objects uh, as an anchor. So what's important is not so much the particular style of practice that the progress of insight um, description comes out of, but the learnings or the pointings too that unfold in perception in the human mind as practice unfolds for us individually, each in our own way. And some of these perceptions, some of these learnings, some of these knowings, of course, are partially brought forward by the teachings that you hear in the meditation hall or in the uh, interactions you have with a teacher in your individual interviews. The teacher will point out particular things to you, different things that may differ for, for each one of you. So for instance, a teacher may point out to you the difference between a sense experience, like a hearing, and a mental reaction that arises in response to it. Hearing, bird, like it, oh, happy. This is an example of one of the first learnings called the teachings on Nama Rupa, the mind starting to be able to differentiate the difference between something that happens at one of the physical sense doors and what the mind is doing. That those are actually two different things that 
a second learning, the second of the, the insights or noticings that are uh, particularly significant is the noticing of cause and effect. How things arise conditionally out of causes and conditions. For instance, we stub our toe. There's the experience of unpleasantness. Then maybe there's the arising of anger in the mind. And maybe the arising of particular sensations in the body that are a reaction to the arising of anger in the mind, a follow-on experience, right? We start to see, okay, experience is caused, caused. Some of the causes and conditions that are causes and conditions that we can see recognize in the immediate, some of them we don't know. Many of them we don't know. If you really look at the net of causation, it's incredibly broad. You know? What, what made that reaction in the mind be one of anger when you, you hurt yourself by stubbing your toe instead of compassion? Roots. There's a lot of, a lot that goes into things. Right? So this is the world of seeing intentionality too, that with this inside cause and effect. How, in, how our intentions, for instance, before physical action can cause the body to re- respond, to go through the process of standing and walking or reaching or sitting or conditionality, teachings about cause and effect. A third of these significant teachings are the teachings of, related to, seeing the three characteristics of all things. The mind starting to recognize and to learn through its own seeing, oh, things are impermanent. Let's see, half an hour ago it was sunny. Now it's cloudy again. That's one level of it, one gross level of it. Oh, things are impermanent, things change. This morning I was feeling good about my meditation practice, now I feel like a failure. Oh. Things change. I was feeling glad to be here at lunch and now I wish I could get the hell out of here. (laughs) Things change. Emotional states change, physical states change. Sensory experiences change. Any experience that you can have, because it's conditioned, looking back to the previous point, cause and effect, conditionality. Anything that can happen is going to, going to change because the causes and conditions that support its arising and its manifestation are unstable in and of themselves. 
And when the mind starts to realize that, it starts to see the second of the three characteristics. It starts to say, okay, there's dukkha in this, this instability of things. Because there's not control. There may be influence sometimes. Sometimes we may have this sense of control. The wind is blowing the the door open because it's not latched and we can grab it maybe and slam it and the lock will catch. But you can't stop the wind, right? So we start to see dukkha. We start to recognize that as being inherent in anything that is changing. And And we see the third of the three characteristics, which is, well, if it's like that, Let's say impermanent, that's that's kind of wobbly at best. So that would be dukkha, not reliable, unstable. Well, that also means that I don't really control it. Not self. So what I'm experiencing can't be something that's controlled by or owned by this permanent, fixed, unchanging self that governs it. So that idea of how I exist can't exactly be right. Hmm, three characteristics. Impermanence, dukkha, anatta. So we see this in our own knowing just by attending in this ongoing moment-to-moment way with mindfulness to experience as it presents itself, as it unfolds. So those are the, the first three of the seeings which can arise in practice where the mind is starting to recognize some things that are important in breaking through the covering of delusion that clouds the mind. So that brings us to, well, okay, if those are the first three, body and mind, cause and effect, slash conditionality, to seeing three characteristics, three, learning three. Then the fourth is seeing the arising and passing away of phenomenon. So this is where at very interesting learning where the mind, as it continues to develop mindfulness and concentration, starts to be able to attend to things with a little more stability, a little bit more attention. There's more sustained knowing and it starts to notice some interesting things. So the mind starts to notice, well, everything that is experienced, I'm seeing right now, there's a beginning and kind of a middle and an end to it. So it's seeing impermanence, right? But it's seeing it quite specifically. Okay, there's a beginning, like a first beginning of a sound. Then there's a middle of it where it's kind of going on. And then at a certain point, that sound passes away. And then maybe it's replaced by another experience of hearing. 
There's a beginning of a new sound in the middle and an end. Or maybe this starts to arise as a knowing in terms of feeling the sensations of the breath. Okay, there's a beginning of the in-breath, there's a middle of the um, in-breath, there's an end to the in-breath. And the same thing for the out-breath, right? So instead of reality being experienced as just kind of this blur of stuff that's hard to observe specifically, the mind, because of the mental factors that are present and because of the practice that's been done, develops some clarity, has a a subjective experience of having increased observational capacity to actually know what's going on and to stay with it. So in this kind of seeing, you're in a sense, you're seeing the life cycle of a conditioned event. And this can be experienced on a lot of different scales. I gave the example of, you know, a sound arising and being there and then it passes away and the mind had noticed, noticed that when it happened. I went, oh. But it can be seen on larger scales and smaller scales. So it can be seen on, sometimes when the mind is really concentrated and clear, it can see this on very micro scales. For instance, can see the arising and passing away of particular, more subtle kinds of phenomenon within a single in-breath. So it's a little bit like those uh, nested Russian dolls, you know what I mean? (laughs) There's the thing and then there's another smaller thing in the middle of it and a smaller thing in the middle of that experience. Like maybe the very rapid arising and passing away of a particular sensation within the middle of the in-breath. That is a life cycle event in and of itself, right? At that smaller scale. So when the mind is, is like this, the mind can see, seem very fast and agile. Now, a really important piece of this is when the mind is perceiving in this kind of way, it's usually because it's been working along at learning by attending to things when they weren't clear, <laughs> when the hindrances were present, when things were vague, when you weren't sure what mindfulness was, just continuing to stay engaged, stay involved, being present, getting back on the horse when you got dumped (laughs) into the pit of (laughs) delusion again, getting back on the horse and just in a very matter-of-fact kind of way, just recommitting to uh, remembering what the point of the activity is, which is sustained mindful uh, presence, with a rising experience. And eventually, it's kind of like, oh, access concentration. There's some developed ability to sustain perception with mindfulness. So the mind can seem uh, very fast and agile when it's seeing the arising and passing away of phenomenon. 
So with this, there's often a sense of clarity and a sense of uh, confidence that can come to. So there can be higher energy and more sense of ease and attending to things. The body might feel well. Be able to sit for long periods of time. There can be a sense of happiness and the experience of rapture and tranquility. So this is very interesting because part of what you're seeing when I describe the kind of attendant, some of these attendant things that can be present when the mind is having this particular learning that things arise, stand, and then pass away, is you're seeing how the experience of that kind of perception of seeing the beginning, middle, and end of things creates certain kinds of emotions and certain kinds of physical uh, sensations in the body. I said, you know, the body often feels well here and the mind feels clear and then you feel kind of happy. You feel like, okay, I'm, I got a grip on this now. <laughs> okay, I know how to do this. <laughs> I've got this puppy now. Okay, I got it. I got the good, I got the good meditation. It's happening for me now. So there can be rapture and tranquility there. So there's that sense of, okay, I'm getting good at this. And there's often an unstated uh, thought or assumption that, well, okay, it's going to continue to be like this, only better and better. (laughs) Right? Because we think of it, you know, kind of like learning how to ride a bike, that, you know, once you learn how to ride the bike, then, you know, at some point you're going to be able to pop a wheelie and... (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's just a matter just a matter of time. You know, it's gonna be like it is only, you know, better. So you can see how the mind like solidifies this assumption that it knows what's coming next. Right? That it's it, it is controlling uh, what's gonna arise next. So there's the arising of that self sense there, right? that fixed self-sense of somebody being in control and holding the reins of what's going to happen. So you can see it's easy for uh, grasping and a sense of control of the process to enter in unseen often. Well, you remember the teaching of the three, the learning of the three characteristics? Okay, we'll pick up that, <laughs> the implications of that as being uh, the truth of how things exist because of their conditioned nature, the impermanence of things. But I want to say something about some particular things that are sometimes present when the practice is going on here and um, in this zone with the learning of the, the fourth uh, insight when things are showing up like that, which are something that are called the corruptions of insight. Have you heard of that phrase? The corruptions of insight. So when the mind is in this zone, and sometimes even in the uh, the previous 
zone when it's really starting to see the three characteristics and things. Mindfulness and concentration is stronger than it's been previously, right? So I made a point of saying that that's part of how this this opens. And there can arise a number of different kinds of experiences that might be new to the person on retreat uh, and therefore exciting and fascinating. So in the process of having new kinds of experiences arise, mindfulness and relationship to them is fairly fragile when it's new, especially when it's novel. So attachment to these particular kinds of experiences can develop and delusion enters in when they're clung to. So I'll give you some ideas about what these uh, ten corruptions of insight consist of. So first there's illumination. There might be an experience of illumination, like some sort of experience of light, you know, like some light arises in the mind or maybe it arises in the body or maybe it seems like, you know, somebody's got a flashlight <laughs> shining in your eyes but your eyes are closed. The experience of light, illumination. Then there's the experience, uh, can be the experience of rapture, also called PT, which is various types of thrills and chills, you know, unusual body sensations or vibrations or, uh, you know, like prickly feeling like your hair on your arms is standing straight up or uh, unusual physical things, movements of the body, that kind of thing. Then there can be the arising of (coughs) tranquility uh, and calm and satisfaction with this state. Ooh, calm, calm. And maybe kind of a drifting off into uh, inattention in relationship to it. There can be the experience of something that's called sukha, which is generally translated as bliss. Bliss, just feeling blissful, happy, blissful, this beautiful, blissful state. Or maybe there's a strong arising of sadha, um, which is sometimes translated as faith or fervor. So the mind starts getting all excited about the the truth of the teachings of the Buddha and how, you know, when you go home, you're going to tell all your friends and family about it and you're going to get them all to meditate or, you know, maybe you want to go in and give a Dharma talk to the teacher and, you know, just kind of getting getting amped up a little bit. And uh, partially from this, there can be a kind of strenuousness or a kind of way of making effort where, okay, let me at it. I'm going to batter down the doors to heaven. I'm going to just like make it happen. I'm going to, you know, not just knock, knock, knock on heaven's door. I'm just going to bust those open and storm in, right? There can be a kind of fascination with the past, like a, a 
when, when the mind starts to think, oh, now I understand why I'm experiencing this. I can see that this went into this kind of experience that I'm having and I can trace that back to my, you know, what I heard about my great-grandmother and how she was with her son and, right? There can be uh, the arising of the mind thinking, thinking, thinking about various teachings of the Buddha and how they fit into this particular thing that's happening now and does this stack up against this particular other teaching that you heard and, you know, which sutta does this really come from and is it this or is it that? Where the mind is processing it through the rational intellect, but is kind of losing track of immediate experience. There can be a kind of uh, indifference that can arise. Oh, this is so so great, it's so smooth now, I can, you know, it just coast, it's just all happening by itself, I don't have to really, you know, attend. And then there can be something called uh, Nikanti, gratification and delight in objects. Like, this is so great, this is so great. This is what, you know, this is so great. So in these descriptions of conditioned phenomenon that may arise when the mind gets into this uh, seeing of the arising and passing away of things, you might wonder well, what's wrong with these things? Especially if you are Dharma students and you recognize that, well, at least some of those things that are on the list, they're like on the good list, aren't they? They're like on in the seven factors of awakening list and the you know five spiritual faculties list and aren't those good things? Why are they calling them corruptions? Why are, why are they saying that this is a problem? So the answer is, they're not necessarily a problem. You know, the arising of these, uh, some form of these are actually a sign that the the practice has developed to a place where it is because the practice has been good. But the question is, does the mind have the right understanding of what's going on and does it have the right relationship with these phenomenon? So let's talk about how these can become problematical, these kinds of things, if they're not understood and practiced with well. So if these things are arising, just like anything else that might arise, if they're not investigated with mindfulness, what's going on is basically you've forgotten the basic practice instruction. (laughs) Right? The mind is so excited by this or something that it's forgotten the baseline of its undertaking, which is to be mindfully present with predominant experience in an investigative kind of way, 
right? Keeping sati, keeping mindfulness as the, the lead horse. Remembering to relate to whatever arises in the same kind of way. So we forget to be receptive and to actually check out the specifics of what's happening as they're happening. So the mind has forgotten the task and is kind of treating these as special cases. Oh, it's light. Okay, so another way it can be problematic is, you know, if they're misunderstood. So I just said, oh, it's light, you know. Like, the mind can get tripping on this stuff. Like, I wonder if this is the same kind of light that you see in a near-death experience, you know, or... I wonder if this is like the internal light that the Quakers talk about when, you know, they're practicing the light of God within you. So the mind is kind of making an interpretation or searching for an interpretation of what's going on. Or perhaps you have some of those body experiences that can be common when rapture is present. And you believe that it's going to end in some ultimate and perhaps permanent new physical state. You know, so you like kind of urging it on to see, you know, what you can do and can you make this happen and can you make that happen and can you make, right? So you've gone from a stance of receptivity and investigation of it as it is to kind of like trying to work it, right? To get the mind getting involved with it, trying to work it, trying to open something up by doing something in relationship to something, right? So it's got an agenda going on. Or, you know, another way of misunderstanding this, these kinds of um, events is that maybe a belief arises like, okay, this is like close to nirvana. I'm like almost ready to pass through the gateless gate or in some cases, you know, people can actually think that this is enlightenment or they're enlightened now because they're having these unusual experiences, especially if they're really pleasant and the self-senses is bound up in them. So in the case of Dharma insights, again, Dharma insights are a natural arising in practice. I mean, the mind is observing, 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 you know, what's happening moment by moment. It's noticing things. At certain points in the practice, there's going to be thinking arise in the mind about what it's noticing. Like, well, what is this? You know, it's like, oh, oh, I see now. I see. Yeah. So it, things will replicate themselves in language sometimes. What you, but the thing to be aware of is when you really get on board that train and try to work it, you know, well, I wonder if that means this and I wonder if that means that and I wonder if that connects to that and maybe that means that, but maybe that's a different system, but I, I'm not sure. But how does that relate to that? Psych- right? The mind get, gets entangled with interpretation and trying to uh, get a cognitive, uh, cognitively based understanding of what's going on and forgets the importance of the immediacy of direct experience that's really on that very basic sensory present tense level of receptivity. Another way these kind of phenomenon can become 
problematic is if the practice becomes unbalanced. So for instance, if there's a lot of energy that arises in the mind and strong faith and enthusiasm, you know, if the mind isn't rebalanced, it can become ungrounded and lacking in calm and equanimity. You know, like, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to make the big push, you know, I'm going to make it happen. And, you know, sometimes people will come in and, and you know, they, they want to make effort, but you can feel that they're grounded, they're balanced in some sort of way. And then there are other times people c- will come in for an interview and they're like, I'm going to, and it's like their eyes are bugging out of their head and, you know, you can tell they didn't feel anything, uh, their feet on the floor when they walked in the room and, you know, they're not listening to a word that you said and then you got to say, okay, Joey, sit down, tell me, can you feel the back of the <laughs> chair? <laughs> can you feel that? Can you feel your feet on the floor? Like, this? okay, turn it down, turn it down, buttons. <laughs> you're, you're getting a little out there, right? And, you know, sometimes these things, when they arise, especially the first time you hit into this territory of experience, because these things are unusual and unfamiliar, sometimes there can be a little bit of fear that comes with it, right? Like, oh my God, what is this? You know, what, my body is like shaking and, you know, I'm like seeing this light. It's like, where is this ride going? I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure I really, you know, want to be on this train. What if it's, you know, I go home and it's like, so, you know, this again is an organic kind of response of the whole system sometimes when we have these concentration effects arise, especially when we haven't had this before or when they're strong. And in this case, you know, the, the important thing is to see, basically see the fear that's present in the mind as the foreground experience and to recognize that, right? It's like, oh, the foreground experience right now is like, there's fear. There's this hindrance there now, fear. Oh, it's like fear, worry, worry. What's worry feel like in the body? What's fear like in the body? Okay, this is what it feels like. Oh, the stomach is tight, hands are cold, right? To actually work with what's there. To bring mindfulness to to the this state which is now um, shading or tinting what you know. And then it can be problematic if attachment develops due to the pleasantness or novelty of what's experienced, right? Clinging to it, trying to keep the run going, you know? It's like, oh, I, I got a cue. Oh, it felt so pleasant, you know, that last sitting. How did I do it? Maybe I could get it, you know, get it back. How did I do that? You know, you see the mind kind of manipulating and trying to create uh, what it imagines would be a return of the previous experience, right? Trying to exert control. Not seeing the not-self element of it. Not seeing the impermanence of it. Forgetting about the three characteristics and kind of like grasping to try to solidify the situation. So basically, the pro- pro- it can be pr- become problematic if the main task is forgotten. So if mindfulness weakens, then uh, in the, the through this not seeing these particular things the mind is doing in relationship to these things, then the practice can kind of stall out, and more and more hindrances can can arise, and then you have the experience of 
going in retrograde motion, or seemingly going into retrograde motion. But if the practice remains strong, you know, the wobbling gets seen and then you remember the main relationship to take with anything that arises. If mindfulness is maintained when the mind is in this arising and passing state, then you get to see the actual passing away of the arising and passing away stage. So, you know, having thought earlier, I remember I alluded to how the mind tends to solidify these things like, okay, I got this puppy now. I'm so clear, you know, I see the arising, I see the middle, I see the end, and then the arising, the middle, and the end. I'm getting good at this. I, I, I've got this, you know. Like now it's going to be like this, and then now it's going to be like that. And then what happens? Oh, impermanence. This particular cycle of uh, perception, of seeing things in a way that seems satisfying often, that's conditioned too. That cycle of perception is conditioned too. That, oh my God, I'm losing it. I'm losing it. It's not like that. I'm losing it. Huh? Well, that's the, that's the beginning of the end of the learning of the arising and passing you see the passing of the arising and passing cycle. Which leads us onward into the next state, which is the learning to see dissolution, the passing away of all conditioned things. So that'll be the gist of the next talk, a conversation about the experience of the knowing of dissolution and the subsequent learnings that follow that leading up to the mind moving in the direction of the experience of equanimity. So that's good for tonight. You. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.